0: You are listening to a special edition of Econ Talks, dedicated to the 30th anniversary of the EBRD.
1: Hello, good afternoon. Uh, Welcome from London. This is Jonathan Charles. I'm the EBRD's Managing Director of Communications. On the 15th of April, 1991, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development opened its doors for business for the first time. It was conceived by its founders as, I quote, a new and unique structure of cooperation, in a continent which was still recovering from the shock of the collapse of communism. Its mission then, as now, was to further progress towards market-oriented economies and to promote private and entrepreneurial initiative. So at the age of 30, our 30th anniversary today, how is the EBRD doing? It's had to deal with all sorts of crises over those three decades, financial crashes and the continuing pandemic, of course, amongst them. What lessons can we draw from its story so far? And how can what we've learned to date help us to cope with the climate emergency and other challenges ahead, such as widening inequalities? We are, of course, uh, looking back to look forward as we actually do today's debate. So we're very glad you've joined us for that. Today, to discuss all of that, I'm joined by some of the most distinguished and influential economists on the planet. They have uh, one more thing in common. They've all been Chief Economists here at the EBRD. And one of them has that job today. So let me introduce you to Lord Stern, Nick Stern, Professor of Economics and Government at the LSE. Eric Bergloff, the inaugural Chief Economist at the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, AIIB. Previously, he was Director of the Institute of Global Affairs at uh, the LSE School of Public Policy. And Sergei Guria, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in Paris and, of course, Beate Javorcik, our current Chief Economist and also Professor of Economics at Oxford. This event is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page as well as via Zoom. Before we start our discussion, a few pointers for those of you joining us on Zoom. Uh, and Please make sure, of course, that you uh, don't unmute yourself. It would be great if you were muted. Please keep your camera turned off so our internet can manage the hosting of all of you who've joined us on Zoom. You can put questions to the panel in the chat box. Uh, we'll be picking some of those up a little later on to ask our panel. Uh, introduce yourself when you post your question. If you're uh, watching us on Facebook Live, we have many Facebook Live viewers, post your questions in the comments. Uh, we'll open it up to your questions probably for the last half hour or so. Uh, but before all of that, let's start by hearing from the EBRD president, Odile renaud She is going to share her thoughts on her vision of the EBRD's unique role. Odile.
0: Thank you very much, Jonathan, and uh, thanks to all to participate in this event, and thanks to our uh, special guest, uh, um, the four chief economists of the bank. So today we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of of the bank. I want to touch very briefly on three things. First one, the achievements of our past, second, the challenges of present day, And so the strategic decision we need to take for our future. I would just like to start with a quotation, which is from Peter Drucker, the Australian management thinker credited to have said or written the best way to predict the future is to create it. And in a way, I think that 30 years ago, at the end of the Cold War, the visionary leaders of that era decided just to do that. And they could have sit back, and wait and see what could happen in Eastern Europe and beyond. They have decided to help determine its future. They have decided to create a new institution. This is why how and how uh, what, how and why the EPRD came about. And I think that their vision was right from the start. They believed that the region would be to be prosperous, environmental sustainable, free and democratic, and they put some very solid basis with a very specific and unique mandate for the EBRD, focusing on the private sector, bringing al- along this political dimension and de- developing a unique model of banking which has proven in the last 30 years its efficiency. So this vision has proved remarkably prescient. And it has allowed us to adapt to many changes and challenges over the last 30 years. Let me mention a few of them. First one is very clear and remains a key challenge, which is the escalating global warming, the environmental degradation. And this has in bring us to invest more and more in the green economy. The second one is a succession of economic crises and the rising inequalities which have highlighted the importance of strong and well-governed institutions, agile economy, as well as inclusion. And I think the crisis we are in currently following the COVID pandemic is quite unique and represents a huge challenge for economists and bankers to think it's through and find appropriate solutions to get out of it. And third, our move into new regions, such as the southern and eastern Mediterranean, Where the EBRD business model has proved as attractive and successful as ever, even if we intervene in different political backgrounds, different societies, and so forth. So along the way, and helping to navigate in in face of these challenges, the EBRD benefited from the thinking and expertise of some great minds. And I want to underline that the EBRD is a bank and. We have a lot of people working in the EBRD, specialized in loans agreement, in financial institutions, how to set up an infrastructure project, a private sector investment, a privatization, and so forth. But it's more than that. And the EBRD is a bank who wants to have impact and this part at the core of our mandate. And that's why I'm very happy today to have to celebrate our birthday for EBRD chief economists, past and present, to express their view all of them have been at the core of the EBRD thinking and work in the last years. And let me briefly present their contribution. I think, I mean, at another event this morning, uh, an internal event, I'm, I have covered the bank's plan for stepping up our investment in the green economy and aligning with the Paris Alignment. I think this is a big step forward. We are working a lot on that. and. Uh, one of our panelists, Nicholas Stern, has played a very well-known and historic role in promoting the global cause of climate change mitigation and green investment. And I think he will provide a very insightful contribution this morning. As EBRD chief economist in the, in the 90s, he also created the bank methodology for turning transition goals into policy and operational priorities. Eric Bergloff, Sergei Guriev, and Beata Sharjovic have all built on his work, and each has made a major contribution to the way the EBRD's thinking and operation have adapted to new challenges. Eric helped to adjust the bank's thinking for expansion into new regions and for the financial and economic crisis when many of our countries appeared stuck in transition. And I think this concept was one of Eric's concepts. Sergei played a key role in launching the bank's new thinking on transition qualities and also paid particularly strong attention to the need for good governance and strong institutions. And Beata now with us as a challenging task of advising us uh, on future trends, just as the pandemic is reshaping our world. And I was saying before how big a challenge it is. So thanks to this four. Uh, I think we have all the ingredients we need for a fascinating discussion about the bank's past, present and future. And also I wanted to personally thank for all they brought in the bank and they helped the bank being what it is today. So I'm looking forward for the discussion and thank to thank all.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Odile, for those opening thoughts for our discussion today. Uh, of course, all of our uh, chief economists who come back—they're all alumni. And I welcome many, many alumni of the bank who are joining us today. I can see many names up there in the list. Uh, the staff who helped to build the bank and make it what it is today—so welcome to you. And we're marking another anniversary—not just the 30th anniversary of the bank—it's the first evan- anniversary of our Econ Talks. Uh, one year of exciting conversation with world leading thinkers. The first event was broadcast on the 14th of April last year in the same company. Uh, So something else to celebrate today, uh, having the thought process running on here at the EBRD. So Beata, Eric, Nick, Sergei, the world as we know it has certainly changed. Let's start and maybe you could sum up how you think uh, the world has changed and what the EBRD's role in this changed uh, world might be. Beata, let me start with you.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. Well, I think the EBRD is the ultimate impact investor. We show that one can make money by doing good. Right? Think about our renewable projects in countries which tend to be difficult to do business with. We show that even there, there exist attractive investment opportunities. We work with governments to change laws to make new types of investments possible. Think about our local currency market. We also serve as a seal of approval, as a guarantor uh, that a project will be good, will be credible. Recently, we participated in issuing the first sustainability-linked bond in a country of operations the largest uh, electric power producer in Greece, committed to cutting its CO2 emissions by 40% by the end of next year. If they don't deliver on this goal, the interest rates on their bond will have to go up steeply. Well, how do other investors know that this is credible, that a fair judgment will be reached on whether or not they achieve this goal? we give a seal of approval. We are there, we send a signal. So our impact goes beyond what, what we do in a particular project. It's about unlocking investment opportunities for others. And that's why we are an impact investor.
1: We so. thank you. Uh, Nick Stern, what role then do you think the EBRD should play in our very changed world? Um, let me focus on
3: the transition to the um, zero carbon economy. Um, I gave a talk at the European Central Bank um, uh, not long ago. And the remark at the beginning was that uh, we are all transition economies now. The pace of change will have to be remarkable to go to net zero in just 30 years. And we have to go to net zero everywhere, of course, because net zero is net zero. They're not gonna be many negatives is a huge task. So this is economics as if time matters. So much of economics is sort of comparing equilibrium and saying this policy is better than that policy because the equilibrium it gives looks better than the one we're in now. This is a story of time and doing it fast. And the EBRD is actually almost unique amongst the the banks where the pace of change and the radicalness of change was there from the beginning. So we're all transition economies now, the meaning of the transition frontier has changed and the uh, sustainability is at center stage. If you're trying to build strategy, it's a good idea to have solid first principles. And it's remarkable how solid the first principles of the EBRD have been and will be. Article one, Uh, open market economy, and of course, we've always interpreted that to mean a well-functioning market economy, and that means taking into account the whole environment story. Article 2.17, I believe it is, which has environment uh, in it quite explicitly, and sustainability, actually, too. The people who wrote that did a very good job, and it's those first principles, and of course, fundamentally, sound banking additionality and transition impact. You take Article 1, uh, Article 2.1, Little Roman 7, and sound banking additionality and transition impact, you've got the logical structure that you need to drive this whole story forward. It depends on scale, it depends on urgency, and the EBRD has very powerful instruments to go to scale and give that urgency. The EBRD has the advantages of a development bank, And that means that it should um, be on the frontier because it has those advantages and it should push out the frontier and it should move as the frontier moves. And that's the way we articulated all the discussions about how we should move over time and all the sort of discussions about, uh, you know, whether countries should be retired or or not. It was about being on the frontier and moving uh, out that uh, frontier. That is, of course, embodying the power of the example, the multiplier of the example. We have the multiplier, secondly, through the work with the private sector, through the management and reduction of risk, that private sector multiplier is fundamental. And we have the multiplier of collaboration with other IFIs other IFIs, to share risk in different ways and to create the kind of policy and uh, investment framework country platform is a language sometimes used to foster the investment. So many more ways of doing it, but those are three very big um, multipliers, pace and scale that the EBR can deliver by basing its actions on the recognition of the need to change very rapidly and the guidance of sound banking, additionality, transition impact, and Article 1 and Article 2.
1: Nick, thank you very much. And uh, yes, you're right. Very far sighted in the writing originally of our articles of agreement. The sustainability one always strikes me, you know, as being far ahead of its time. Uh, Eric, your views.
4: Yes, so thank you. So so um, I agree very much with Nick that this is the challenge of our time is the net zero transition. And and uh, Nick was very kind to uh, be the, Sort of introduce or discussion of when we first introduced the report on the low carbon transition. I think it's now ten years ago, and, and uh, it was just the beginning of a journey that uh, the bank has been has been doing. And I, you know, I had reason to think uh, a lot uh, about um, w- what kind of institution do we need for that uh, journey. And um, I'm I'm in another institution now, and and um, you know, always, it always allows you to reflect on on you know, what is, um, what is it that makes EBRD particularly well-placed? I think one, the first thing I would say is that it's a, it's a multilateral institution where the countries of operations are important players. They are shareholders. They are actively participating in forming the strategies. And, and it's going to be critical when we do the net zero transition, that we don't, we have to bring those countries along because they have a much more difficult journey to make, and and we need to be, uh, be there uh, supporting them. It has also, as part of the shareholder structure, the key players: uh, the United States, the China, India, and and uh, and, and and Russia, for that matter. <laughs> and and uh, you know these are it's uh, very important uh, for uh, making progress on this uh, agenda. The uh, it has a, a very large. For a large staff or a large staff of development professionals, they they have a very strong presence on the ground, and I, I think a unique business model. Nick talked about that, but I think the the model that IBRD has um, and developed over time. It wasn't fully there from the beginning, I would say, but it has emerged over time, combining engagement with the private sector, but also engaging with the state to help build. Uh, private sector. So it's really about private sector development. You need to work with both sides of that, and uh, both the state and and the private sector. And when I've looked at at uh, at Africa, for example, there's no one doing uh, that work uh, at the moment. So it is showed in it, when it entered into North Africa and the Middle East that it can adjust. There were a lot of changes, things that are changed quite dramatically for example the approach to inclusion changed dramatically you know there was a lot of learning in that process and i think that has showed that as it now goes into even higher gear on the climate issues i think it it is very well placed um, to make progress on that and uh, we just do think there are areas where where the ebrd could do more on particularly on uh, when it comes to um, addressing the outstanding stock of co2 and maybe looking at wider uh, universe of of, uh, mitigation measures but there it's very well placed to to do this so thank you
5: eric thank you very much indeed so thank you jonathan thank you for inviting me at um, at the risk of repeating what everybody else has said i would say that the brd is indeed very well placed to build back better after the pandemic we Really, see the business model, the modus operandi, the principles are actually uh, designed in the way that they should be designed today in 2021. And indeed, it is striking to what extent this business model and those principles uh, sound banking, additionality, and transition impact and the modern understanding of transition impact are well placed for post pandemic world. Now, uh, of course, the existential challenge to humanity today's climate change. That's not the only challenge. If you think about the issues that Adil has mentioned related to inequality, related to labor market polarization, related to the rise of uh, autocracies and populists, challenges related to global inequalities and immigration, challenges uh, related to discrimination. All of those issues are the ones where EBRD is now playing a key role and is going to play a a bigger role, not just reaching the frontier, but indeed pushing the frontier and engage in private sector in countries of operations to think about those issues. One of the thing thing, uh, that I was struck with when I was working at the BRD was that um, as a BRD is a private sector bank, BRD would engage uh, businesses in countries of operations who were interested in belonging to the future we know what the future would be in those countries and businesses would know that if they're partnering with EBRD, they would use technology and business models that are the future. And this is is where I think EBRD's role is so unique that it's not just a development bank, it's a private sector development bank that helps to create a competitive business environment that uh, is using not the business models from the past, but business models that belong to the future. And this is the post-pandemic world, is exactly the opportunity not to go to business as usual before 2020, but actually think about where we want to be in 2030 and in 2050. So I'll stop here for the moment.
1: Don't look back, look forward. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Sergey, and thank you to all of you for your initial thoughts to uh, get this debate going. Uh, By the way, uh, for those of you watching, please feel free to submit your questions uh, either on the comments section in Facebook Live or the chat function here on Zoom. We'll be putting some of those questions uh, to our economists a little later on, so we would love to hear from you. Now, obviously, the 30 years of the EBRD is about 30 years of helping countries, uh, countries of operations. Let's have a look at those countries of operations for a minute. The uh, Oxford historian Tim Garton Ash wrote recently, it's time, in his words, for a new revolution in the transition countries. So I'd like to ask you all, uh, chief economists and former chief economists, do you agree what remained uh, unfinished from the original revolutions, velvet and perhaps not so velvet, what needs to change now? Uh, maybe I'll start with you, Beato, because after all you come from uh, a transition country origin.
2: In one word, institutions. Transition countries lag behind countries with comparable level of income in terms of the quality of institutions. And this is visible if you look at country level indicators, if you ask firms, if you ask individuals. Um, and this poor governance is detrimental for several reasons. Gov- poor governance creates uncertainty, and uncertainty is bad for investment. Um, poor governance damages competitiveness because of corruption, its twin brother. Poor governance creates an uneven playing field, gives advantage to connected firms, to connected individuals, creates inequality of outcomes, inequality of opportunities, and a sense of injustice. So if it's so good, why is it so hard to improve governance? Well, because the benefits of better governance accrue to everyone else, to everyone. But the cost of improvements hit a few connected individuals and connected firms. And they know this very well, so they will fight tooth and nail. And, and that's why countries often need an external nudge to improve their institutions. And we, as the EBRD, can be a provider of this nudge.
1: Okay, interesting thought. And gay, of course, uh, we did have a transition report at the EBRD a few years ago, stuck in transition.
5: Yes, this was a report I contributed to, but uh, this uh, was a um, uh, overseen by Eric. So Eric is probably a He's better, best. yeah. But uh, one of the things I would mention, I fully agree I fully agree with Beata and I think institutions, governance, corruption are the main challenge. And uh, if you think in general about what uh, differentiates, um, what differentiates developed and underdeveloped countries, most of us travel in rich and poor countries. How can you see that you're in a poor, underdeveloped country? you see that things are temporary. You, you see that uh, investments are short-term. People don't really have a long-term view exactly because of the reasons Beata mentioned. And this is where the patient money, EBRD's money, long-term money can actually make a difference. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very proud that I, I was part of this uh, uh, project of introducing governance uh, mandate into EBRD's transition uh, concept, but I would like to give, uh, uh, give the, uh, the credit to Hans-Peter Lankes, who's not here with us. He's alive and well, but not uh, in this talk. Uh, Hans-Peter was an acting chief economist who pretty much pushed this agenda in 2016 before I actually took over. He was an acting chief economist between Eric and myself. And uh, I think, I think um, uh, yes, we need a revolution. We need to rebuild democratic, political, transparent, um, institutions in those countries. That's exactly what I think Timothy Garden ash is talking about, because it's not just lack of uh, democratic uh, political competition. It also is bad for business as uh, those institutions uh, result in chronic capitalism, which is, of course, bad for business. Thank you, Sergey And
1: Eric, so how do countries then overcome being stuck in transition?
4: So, so, my, so my big lesson from, from having uh, watched and, and participated to some extent in this process is that uh, we economists need to have a much better sense of, of process. And that I think, you know, so I agree completely that institutions is what we want to create. And we want to create a lasting institution. We want to extend time horizons of people in, you know, in individual lives, in companies and so on. But we need to bring them along, and I, I think we are often a bit hard on on uh, on uh, the countries in in Central Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union because, you know, I don't think we paid enough attention at the time uh, to how important it was to bring them along. And there was a lot of uh, support from the beginning, from I think everywhere, particularly in, in Central Eastern Europe. The, you know a lot of enthusiasm uh, for the process of, of joining coming back to Europe and so on. And, and um, I, I think, as we have seen also in many other parts of the world, uh, it is uh, very difficult to, um, to, to bring everybody along, and particularly when you go through very uh, dramatic changes. It's very easy to, to uh, be, forget um, uh, that large parts of society that don't benefit in, or people benefit in, to very different extent. And i think that to me is the the big lesson and and uh, i'm very glad that inclusion now and in, in all this dimension of course gender but it's also very much about uh, the, the fact that we need to to have a much more uh, uh, think much more about how we come to decisions how we implement uh, reforms and how we uh, sustain them over time and 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 that to me is is, is the big lesson and and where frankly it's not only we fail not only in, in the, central eastern europe we have failed in in the uk we have failed in the us you know so it's there are you know there, there are many lessons from from uh, these last uh, 20 30 years of
1: experience eric thank you very much indeed uh, nick thank you thank
3: you and and uh, i share very much the thoughts ideas of um the other chief economists i'd also share the remembering um and more than remembering of Hans-Peter Lankes um, in large part because uh, I'm writing a joint paper with him now for uh, the WEF on uh, the Great Reset, how to build back better. Um, And he's still on that case and quite rightly so. I'd also like to remember if if I may at at this stage, my predecessor and successor, the first chief economist of the World Bank was John Fleming, absolutely wonderful uh, man, sadly he's no longer with us. And uh, the extraordinary Willem, who, Poyter, who was my uh, successor, one of the world's great economists and great characters. And it was uh, splendid to, to, work, to work with him. Uh, Beata must be right and echoed by, wisely by uh, 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 Sergei and uh, Eric on the importance of institutions. Um, of course, we have to try to answer the question, how do we change? institutions how do we build institutions and that question was there in the uh, in the world bank sorry in the ebrd and to some extent in the world bank um, uh, for a long for a long period now Um, that doesn't mean we're necessarily very good at it but there is some experience Um, i think if we think what institutions mean that they're usually associated or have at their core ideas of rules, codes, and values. And of course, mechanisms to try to bring those forward. Um, And I think the membership of the European Union was one way in which, for some countries at least, rules, codes, and values were advanced. Now, you know, life doesn't always go one way. Sometimes there are retreats and moves forwards and we do see significant retreats in some places. But nevertheless, I think that uh, was part of the story and quite explicitly uh, a way of trying to bring forward rules, codes and values. Another way is to embody them in what you yourself do. And I think uh, it's absolutely right that the EBRD uh, does, does that. Another way is joint endeavor over something that's shared. And without becoming ludicrously optimistic, there is a joint endeavor over climate and the environment. And if societies get together within themselves and across countries around the joint endeavor, which is of its essence, a long-term story, I think that can be helpful. And I think it's something that the EBRD should bear in mind um, and the other development banks too, uh, as we work together around this shared goal and this shared long term goal, how can we build that uh, adherence to codes and values? And some institutional structures have been built. I mean, the UK has done quite badly on some things and it's done not too badly on uh, other things. And I think building the legal structures around climate change has been one of the things that the UK has done well and it did it off the back of a political uh, sharing of, of the goal. So I think we should use the environment story and sustainability story, pursued of course fundamentally because it's so important, but also to help build the institutions and the shared values and codes uh, that, uh, that we need. A second area, and it's of course intimately linked, is infrastructure. Infrastructure is inherently a long-term story. It needs, particularly for private sector participation, it needs revenue flows. And so there is, I hope, an understanding that you have to get together around that uh, continuity. And I'll just give one last example of that. I spent six years of Friday mornings in the operations committee And here's a a lesson for you, Odile, you've got to have your chief economist on the operations committee. And, you know, it was Ron Freeman and uh, Noreen Doyle and, and myself, and we had some fun and we did some good. But in the early days, you'd get investment bankers coming in and saying, you know, I've just done this wonderful deal in telecoms in country X, I've absolutely nailed down the monopoly for another 20 years, so that the uh, the profits we're going to reap, monopoly profits, of course, we're going to reap here are absolutely splendid. And then we sort of gently suggested that that didn't really meet the the criterion of transition impact under any reasonable interpretation. And before long, the investment bankers, same people intelligent, smart people, good learners, came along and described how their telecoms project did embody important features of open access, which allowed competition and supply and so on. They picked it up very quickly, but we set within the EBRD the codes and the values around what the EBRD was standing for. So I think that um, building this idea of codes and values and rules into environment story and sustainability story, into the infrastructure story, is one way in for the EBRD to have an effect. Because we can't just say it's all about institutions, oh dear. It is all about institutions, but we've got to work out how to make a difference.
1: Thank you very much, Nick, yes, I love that story. Uh, for those people watching, by the way, have never been in the EBRD, the Operations Committee is where we hammer out on a Friday morning exactly which projects we're going to do and going to invest in. Uh, and exactly what form those projects should take. So it's a very important part of uh, the EBRD and indeed the EBRD success. It's worth reflecting, by the way, that at the very start of operations in 1991, the EBRD had around 55 professional staff, so not very many, and just over 20 were bankers with the vast majority in what was then called the development uh, banking department. Now, we were talking just there about some of the challenges that have been faced by EBRD countries over the last 30 years. We probably shouldn't ignore the success Successors because, you know, all of us here I'm sure uh, on this panel will remember what the countries were like in 1991 and indeed before 1991, I certainly remember traveling around what was then uh, the communist world and seeing countries uh, in the 1980s, which were in a terrible state really needed to change economically quite dramatically, uh, and when I contrast those countries uh, now with the way they are, you know, we should think that actually you know, the change has been in some ways significant, uh, and we've had a role in that. So I wonder maybe now we could reflect on what perhaps are the biggest successes in the banks' countries of operations uh, as far as uh, you can see, and Beata, let, let's start with you.
2: Let me, since I haven't been at the ABRD for that long, let me give you a more general answer. I think. The biggest success of the EBRD, as well as its biggest challenge, has been the focus on systemic impact. It's the biggest success because it makes us unique. It makes us have have a long-term impact. And it is a mission that has withstood the test of the time. The reason why it's the biggest challenge, well, just ask any of our banking colleagues. I'm sure it is something that gives them terrible headache in day-to-day operations, the fact that they have to deliver not just sound banking, not just additionality, but also the transition impact. And that makes their jobs so much more challenging uh, than jobs of -of run-of-the-mill investment bankers, private equity fund specialists, or people working for grant giving foundations. But that also means that, you know, even though they may not be making millions, maybe they are not feeling like the masters of the universe, but they are a force of good. And that's what EBRD is about. And I think that has been its biggest success.
1: And, and Beata, you know, you are just about old enough to remember uh, Poland in the 1980s, I would guess. Uh, the big, biggest change, do you think, for example, in our, in our countries of operations is what, the biggest successes that countries of operations can show?
2: The biggest success is reflected in the fact that young people today, young people in Poland and in the region, feel no different than their peers from Western Europe. I, as a teenager, as a young adult, I felt very different, and they don't have this baggage with them, and that's the, I, to me, the greatest success of transition.
1: Yes, that's that's very important. Thank you very much indeed, Vyasa uh, Sergey. The biggest success, do you think, for these countries over the past
5: thirty years? Well, I fully agree that Central and Eastern Europe is now high-income region. So, and. Uh, if you compare Poland and Ukraine today, Ukraine has the same income as 30 years ago. And that was the income Poland had 30 years ago. And whatever we think about uh, um, uh, political orientations of uh, certain governments in Central and Eastern Europe today, these are essential parts of European Union now. And uh, this is a success. This is. Uh, uh, where transition is essentially almost completed. I will not say completed because then you'll have to enter what's called graduation debate, and uh, I don't want to impose that on you. But I think, I think uh, uh, failures in countries like Ukraine actually spotlight the successes in countries like Poland and, and uh, Central and Eastern Europe is now Higher, higher income region, high income region, which was not the case before. Uh, the success also, even though it's not completed in terms of um, pollution and emissions, there is also substantial success on that dimension, dimension as well, even though communist countries were proud to be not engaged in profit making that capitalism was all about and were proud to take care of environment the data suggests that was completely opposite communist countries had double uh, level of emissions uh, per capita relative to similar countries and uh, in that sense what happened afterwards has been a great success where IBRD has participated and the reason um, it's important is that EBRD has really contributed to building a new service sector. Communist countries were overindustrialized, and especially coming from Russia, I can say that pretty much almost every knowledge intensive service company in Russia has EBRD as an investor. And uh, when you think about companies like Yandex, when you think about new retail sector, when you think about all new service sector build on human capital that's what needs to be done in a country like Russia if Russia wants to become prosperous and diversified. and that's where EBRD has invested and that's a great success this is where you can actually trace the new industry the new sector to EBRD investment and uh, I think this is especially important today when EBRD needs to think how EBRD needs to invest in human capital to help countries to build more skills, more education, and how to engage with a new digital sector. Because these are the challenges that EBRD is facing today if it wants to contribute to successful transition in its countries and operation. To handle issues like governance, inclusion, uh, climate change. We all know that much of that is due to investment in education, skills, and digitization so this is this is where you can look back and learn lessons for going forward thank you very much sergey
1: Uh, Nick Stern you know I remember very well traveling around the countries as the revolutions were happening and the immediate aftermath of the revolution and and often you know we heard oh 10 years and these countries will have made the great leap forward and we know obviously transition is much much longer than that uh, these days it's a work of generations but you know I wonder as you compare what you knew in the early days of the bank with today where you see the successes of these countries.
3: Thank you very much
1: uh, Jonathan
3: actually when I was at a student uh, in 1966, my brother and I drove from London um, through uh, Berlin into East Berlin and then Poland and um, uh, the Soviet Union and came out through uh, Georgia and Armenia and then back through Turkey and uh, Greece and Yugoslavia. So my first memories are from 1966. So long ago that that was the last time that England won the World Cup. The um, the difference there between the lives that we lived in uh, in London in in '66 and the lives that were being lived then in '66, in because I went right through from Central Eastern Europe into the Soviet was just enormous. And uh, particularly in the Soviet Union, you felt the fear. Uh, we were 20 and 19. And there was a fear of talking to us. And the lifting of the fear, I think, um, has been differentiated across the region, but in many parts of the uh, region, that fear has been lifted. And I think that uh, economic freedom and the political freedom, again, of course, both of those things varied across the region, have been very important there. I have no delusions that one follows automatically from the other, uh, but they have been a very important part of change. I certainly agree with what was said about Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, the, the rise in living standards, the rise in the ability to choose, have been uh, quite, quite spectacular. And we know that there are difficult political problems now in many places, but we shouldn't lose sight of that. And I know it sounds funny with my English accent, um, but a big part of that has been the European Union. And that's been a very important part of the story. And we should remember how important the European Union was in the setting up of the EBRD in the, uh, in the first place. So I think those are some parts of, of the success which are very important. I think looking forward, we should also recognize that the EBRD has changed the multilateral development banks. And um, I mean, Eric knows this story very well, but I was very much involved in setting up uh, the AIIB and the new development bank in Shanghai, the the BRICS bank. And we had the EBRD as a model. So you wanna know how to set up a development bank? Well, look, you know, look at the EBRD, look at what it does, look at the Articles Association look at its emphasis on the private sector, look at its emphasis on additionality being on the frontier and the transition impact. That's the model that you should use. I did it uh, very much working with Tim Basley, who's been very, my colleague at LSE, who's been very close to the EBRD. Uh, We've been working now for the last 10 years to get a national infrastructure bank in the UK. And we do now have uh, one that is beginning uh, this, uh, this year. And we said the right model is the EBRD. So as well as helping with the change in institutions, the change in living standards institutions and so on that we've been discussing, I think we should recognise also the influence of the EBRD on what a good development bank is. And that has been lasting, and it's going to be really important moving forward because if we're going to make those infrastructure investments and the investments right across the board, they're going to take us to the net zero. The development banks are absolutely center stage because of the long-term nature of the investments, the difficulties of early-stage risk, how to have the take-out funding that brings in the long-term pension funds and so on after you've got over the early-stage risk. Development banks are absolutely center stage. They've never been more important and the EBRD is the best model of those. So I think as well as looking at the countries, if we're asking about the success in the past, we should also look at the influence on the banks, but that's going to be so important in the transition we now have to uh, grapple with.
1: Nick, thank you. Eric, uh, the big successes for our countries of the past 30 years, what's on your mind?
4: I cannot uh, talk too much about the EBRD because I get uh, a lot of comments in my current organization because I I mentioned EBRD too too often, so I I won't. uh, do that now. You know, I I just uh, Nick talked about his uh, travel in um, in the former uh, East Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, and um, I think we shouldn't forget that this was not something that people could do from these countries at the time. And I think that is perhaps the single most important uh, thing that has changed. And and I I, I traveled uh, as a student. Um, uh, or leading uh, groups of tourists, uh, particularly in in the Mo- uh, Moscow and and then uh, Leningrad in, in, in Soviet times, and I I do remember how fearful people were from coming from the West uh, to to go to um, a country like uh, the Soviet Union, and and that's why someone uh, even as, as I, in in that myself could could serve a function uh, to to help kind of um, buffer some of those um, fears and, 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 and try to give people a sense of, of um, normality or, or, or at least help them navigate uh, something that was you know, very um, difficult for, for people to understand. And, and, but, but most of all I think you know, for a young person growing up in that uh, world uh, is very different from what they can do today and I think you know, what Beata described I think captures it um, very well. You know this is, uh, you know, what, what you know. E B I D, of course, in a way, rode the wave of of um, of, um, of these dramatic changes, where the European accession and so on, and, and and But it was I think played a very important role, and particularly in building the financial systems of these countries. We shouldn't forget that in these countries came into uh, the transition or. or uh, uh, you know, without any anything remotely resembling what we think of today uh, uh, as uh, as financial system. So, there, uh, EBRD proves hundreds of, of engagement in in the financial sector. I mean, we learned in the in the global financial crisis that not, that not everything was perfect, and we needed to work much more on on getting a framework for for that uh, uh, dramatic uh, financial uh, development that we, and integration that we have seen, but. That has really changed the opportunities available for people and and allowed you know different parts of these countries to develop and and uh, you know create uh, you know very exciting uh, uh, environments for innovation and so on so i think you without necessarily bringing all the credit to ebrd i think we were part of a very exciting journey a very broad and I would say institution development, even though we, we have seen some weaknesses in institutions, I think fundamentally, when we look at even a country uh, like, like Poland, which has made such incredible uh, advances in, in terms of, of uh, the living standards, and we can have views on, on what's going on in politics there today. But if you look at, for example, corruption today in Poland, I mean, it, you know, Poland used to be one of the most corrupt countries um, uh, certainly in, in Europe and, and today, I think there is almost no difference or, or it's actually less corrupt by most measures than, than many countries in Western Europe. So, you know, things have changed um, uh, dramatically and we should not forget in, in when we sometimes despair over some of the uh, political uh, developments. And, and I think we, we, we should um, understand how dramatically uh, different these countries are today for a young person. Uh, growing up there, compared to 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 what they were, you know, before all these changes.
1: Eric, it would be remiss of me while we're uh, talking not to talk about the expansion. From uh, the former communist world to the southern and eastern Mediterranean, you and I were both part of the exCOM ten years ago, which mm-hmm. decided to recommend to shareholders that the bank should expand its countries of operations into the Middle East and North Africa. a major change. they had not been part of the communist world of course, the bank had operated in Turkey as well, which had not been part of the communist world. but I wonder where you thought uh, the similarities were and why the EBRD model. Was a was a good one at that point to move from looking at countries which had a particular model to expanding to countries that had not uh, been part of the communist economic model why was the EBRD right for that
4: well for first of all I think the, the this opportunity to first go into Turkey and and then um, uh, come into the North Africa and, and the, the Middle East uh, was one of the reasons that uh, for maybe for for the for the EBID, why I stayed so long? So maybe if that hasn't happened, you um, would have had to suffer me uh, a shorter time period. But it was an incre- incredibly exciting uh, experience, you know, having thought about um, a, a, another part of the world and and then uh, trying to think how could we uh, make a difference. And I, I think what what EBID brought to the, a landscape that was, you know, very heavy heavy presence of. Uh, of international institutions uh, you know the world bank uh, other players as well you know there was a kind of development fatigue in these countries and 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 not uh, uh, you know they there's so very little hope they have lived for a long time in very static very corrupt uh, societies uh, very much run by insiders i think what ebadi brought was an uh, engagement with the private sector with uh, uh, focus on on uh, creating opportunities for people to develop, um, bringing in women into the labor force. You know, we 80%, it was so striking. We hadn't thought much about inclusion before, but, you know, once you come to Turkey, we come to uh, North Africa, you know, it is in your face and you need to do something about it. And, and I think it's that sense of, of um, equality opportunity being part of, of, of shaping that. Uh, that, is the main uh, contribution that, that the EBID has has made has had in that part of the world and, and well we did have some very wonderful experiences Jonathan uh, at, at, at the time and, and uh, you know it was a big, great privilege to, to play, play some small role in, in uh, helping the bank make that uh, that transition because it was a transition it was a change and, and it was a very important I think we learned a lot of of, of important lessons from that uh, from that transition
1: no oh, i agree with you a very exciting time and i and I think we became a better bank actually as a result of thinking about uh you know our role and how we could address these issues uh, at that point thank you very much indeed eric um by the way we're going to come to audience questions in a very short period of time but let me just ask one final question to all of the panelists before we do that which is um how you think the pandemic has complicated the ebrd's job and indeed the job uh, the position of these countries that we're seeking to help. Uh, You know, it is an issue issue which is a a shock uh, and which undoubtedly probably makes an already complex task even more complex. Beata.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. Well, I think the pandemic creates a big risk of countries going backwards. So at this point, most economies are, are still on life support nobody knows the true state of the economy. We will find out only when government assistance is withdrawn. And then we will see lots of firms fighting for survival. And the true test will be, will firms that are connected to the governing elites be bailed out? And if that happens, um, we will take a step backwards when it comes to institutions corruption, creonism will be entrenched. Another example from a very different area, think about skilled women. If you look at job websites, we know that's, that women are not applying for jobs, not updating their profiles, they are taking a step back. And to a large extent, this is due to women having to, to pick up the big chunk of, of homeschooling. And it may be a rational decision at the household level. If the husband um, makes more money, it makes sense to prioritize his career. But in the absence or in the presence of the gender wage gap, this creates a vicious circle men make more money than women, so their careers are being prioritized, so women are put further behind. So there's a real risk that the progress we have made on the gender equality front will be reversed. Thank you.
1: Yeah, so thank you very much. Uh, Sergey. how is this more complex than it was going to be anyway?
5: So it is is a very unusual crisis, of course, and uh, this is the crisis which hits uh, uh, people with lower skills, with lower savings, with smaller apartments, especially hard. People who work in uh, high skilled occupations, work from home, uh, like all the BRD stuff now, almost all the BRD stuff does. And uh, this is a crisis which increases inequality and actually also, as Beata said, hits women harder. And so, in that sense, it really emphasizes again and again the need to think about inclusion to think about skills, to think about how EBRD can support investment in human capital, in health and education. And it's not easy because of course EBRD is a private sector bank and health and education are highly regulated and government dominated uh, sectors in many of our countries. But this crisis shows how important it is. And the second dimension is something that I already mentioned is digitization. We know how digitization during this crisis and probably going forward uh, will matter for inclusion, equality, access to opportunity. So uh, again, this is going to be one of the key priorities for anybody who wants to uh, invest in inclusion, equal opportunity, access to education, access to jobs. And so uh, being in London, it's probably hard to appreciate to what extent uh, in many of countries of operations access to internet is still a problem. And in that sense, I think uh, we, we need to remember those priorities going forward. I think uh, this is what this crisis emphasizes. I think I think uh, this crisis teaches a great lesson in inclusion, uh, in, in the importance of inclusion and the tools that uh, we need to invest in, which is access to health, access to education, and uh, digital infrastructure. So, okay, thank you, Nick. The inequalities that
3: that others have referred to are fundamental, Um, you know, gender type of work uh, and so on. And it is um, exacerbating the kind of fractiousness and difficulty uh, in society, the social cohesion um, is threatened. And it's so important then to try to tackle the health part of the crisis in an uh, inclusive, uh, indeed egalitarian way. Uh, you know, What is it that makes us uh, human beings? It's some notion of a shared common humanity and the health part of that story is critical. So how we carry ourselves is, I think, um, extremely important in, uh, in this. On the positive side, I would point to two things. One is the recognition of how quickly we can change if we recognize that we have to. So the notion that change is all too difficult and the economists witter on about adjustment costs and inertia and all that, of course those exist. But we've shown how quickly we can change if we really have to. And I think that spirit is a very uh, important one And I think in many places, there is a a wish to build back better, because for the world as a whole, the last decade uh, has not been good. We've seen falling uh, investment, falling uh, rates of growth of uh, productivity, the kind of social tensions that led to the election of Donald Trump to the Brexit vote. And, and so on. It's not been a good decade and then what? At the end of that decay uh, the pandemic breaks over us so I hope that the experience of that extreme event and the horrible event of the COVID on the back of a not very good decade or two actually but particularly the last decade would generate the kind of uh, willingness to build something different to build back better. And I do think that the uh, the drive to low-carbon economy not the only part, but it's a critical part of that, particularly in the job opportunities and the good job opportunities that uh, it can create to help build out of this. But will you forgive me for noting just one thing, Jonathan, um, the splendid Ron Freeman is here because uh, he's given a um, Uh, a comment on the chat. And I think we should notice that the EBRD was a very good idea at the right time, very well conceived. But you need people to make it happen. And the leadership of the wonderful Jacques Delorsier and the extraordinary Ron Freeman was fundamental in the 1990s for making all this happen. And I, I'm sure, Odile, if you've spoken to Jacques and to Ron. Uh, they would be top of the list of anybody to speak to for an incoming uh, president. And that, I think, is something that we should uh, recognize here, that that leadership was fundamental. And it's not just the right time and the right idea. It's the right people to make it happen.
1: Indeed, thank you very much, Nick. It's very good to see Ron here. We might come to his question a little later on. Uh, Eric, this question of the complexity posed by uh, the pandemic is not just one for the EBRD; it's one for all multilateral development banks, of course, isn't it?
4: No, absolutely. And and yesterday, on on since Ron is on this call, I, I one of my great um, sort of. Uh, Sad, sad moments in in my life was that I didn't get to work with Ron, but I got to know him afterwards. But but uh, he was a, a very good advisor to me when I uh, joined uh, the EBRD. now so on on um, the pandemic, I think it's to me it, it's very clear what everyone has uh, focused on. It has brought out you know very deep inequalities uh, in, in 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 many different societies, and it's. About very fundamental things uh, in in even in you know primary healthcare and uh, and and you know the different access to uh, remote working, remote uh, education, and so on. These are very fundamental things, and, and uh, you know, if something positive is going to come out of this uh, uh, for the other or for the MDB. Community. It must be much more emphasis on this, and I really hope that that Ibadi will find a way and, and uh, to go more with a more assertive approach to health and education. I think it has to understand all the problems, and we, we you know we had so many discussions at the time, and uh, you know how how difficult these sectors are, and uh, and I've had the pleasure now of, uh, since I joined AIB be responsible for developing uh, our health um, approach, and I think there are new ways of working that would fit um, EBRD's uh, uh, kind of uh, model uh, very well. And, you know, it's about, you have to work with, with other institutions, you have to work with uh, 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 NGOs and so on too, and, and uh, there are many incredibly uh, uh, competent and, and experienced uh, uh, institutions that can, can help you through uh, this very difficult uh, sector but but so that is my big hope for for um, for the lessons from this crisis we need to have much more deeper engagement from all the mdbs in in health and, and, and and education you know my big worry sitting you know from with a little bit of distance to this is 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 that we are actually facing a world that incredible uh, divergence and so we had the first year where sort of everyone was hit and in, in one way or another and but now if you look at uh, the the lack of protection that so many parts of the world have in terms of vaccinations in terms of buffers after having lived through one or two waves of of, uh, of the pandemic you know there is there are no buffers any longer in in most of the developing and emerging economies and we see this uh, divergence at the global level we see it within asia look at what happening in, in south asia now with uh, india with bangladesh you know these are you know very tragic there are no policies no uh not not even an attempt from authorities to try to do something you know these are you know and uh, you know the, the consequences of this so we if we cannot manage to find vaccines to to um uh, that part of the world is, is going to be enormous and we will have to live with those consequences for a very long time and by the way it as, as many have said but it's very important to to remind ourselves that you know that we are creating environments that where these viruses can prosper and and you know the evolutionary pressures are increasing new variants are coming you know at a speed that we no longer can can really uh, fathom and and so it's in our self-interest to to really bridge this. This is my big worry that we will not uh, manage to, to tackle this, this challenge.
1: Thank you, Eric. Right, we've got about just under 20 minutes left. So let's try and take some audience questions and we'll try and race through these as quickly as we can. Uh, first question from Andrew Kilpatrick, a former uh, senior economist, of course, with the bank. Uh, could each panelist say what they believe has been the key contribution? One thing, so one thing only. Where the EBRD has made a difference to its regions and wider. One key thing. Uh, Nick, why don't I start with you? Yeah,
3: I'm rather resistant to one key thing <laughs> but, um, because it's the overall story of what uh, a good society and a good economy is all about. So if you allow me to have that general uh, statement, yep. within it, I think that uh, the skills that the EBRD the EBRD developed in particular areas were extremely important and let me just give one example. Um, I think what we did in uh, uh, energy efficiency uh, right from the beginning under the leadership in large measure from somebody who's only just left uh, the, the bank, uh, Josue Tanaka, that is an example of skills which Thank are uh, of a particular kind as well as that generalized skill of working to make a uh, market economy function well. That general story is, 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 is fundamental, that's what we're there for, the market orientation, the private sector investment. But within that, I think the particular skills that we've developed in a number of areas, and I've just given one example, which is uh, energy efficiency, uh, particularly with the background of the area where it started,
1: I think it's been very important. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Sergey, one key thing.
5: Well, this is something that uh, i already said um, uh, creation of a new service sector moving from this industri- heavy industry economy to the economy where you create businesses which uh, give uh, provide middle middle class jobs but also provide services that are much needed in those countries and make life in those countries so much better and as i said Uh, EBRD's uh, job is to create a systemic impact, to change the whole economy. And this is the sector where in many countries you can actually see that the leading companies in this sector are all EBRD clients. And this, I think, is a a great achievement. Thank you. Beata.
2: Privatizations, improving governance of state-owned enterprises. And this work is by no means done and as we are likely to see the state becoming more prominent in the economy, this work will be more important than ever. I mean, we've just documented in the transition report how poor the rules and regulations governing SOEs are. In many countries, you know, the so-called independent boards have no power to appoint managers or to approve budgets appointments to those boards are not based on qualifications in merit. Lots of work to be done.
1: Thank you, Eric.
4: Well, there's not much left to 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 be different. I I, I actually think so. I mentioned before the the participation in in developing the the financial systems and I think the You know, using the financial system as as delivery mechanism and and I think the the um, what Nick was talking about, the energy efficiency credit lines, for example, these were, you know, incredibly powerful um, uh, delivery mechanisms. That that uh, EBRD, I think, for the first, I think, was the first uh, institution to really see the power of, of that uh, mechanism. And and so both building the system, but then also using it to deliver, uh, you know, trade credit, uh, deliver uh, targeted. Uh, uh, credit lines for energy efficiency, and then weaning uh, you know the, the the banks out of them also over time. The uh, the, the credit lines for uh, women entrepreneurs in 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 uh, in uh, eastern Turkey, for example. I mean, they, these are incre- you know, using the financial sector to achieve development aims. I think that's what to me is 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 the the, the single most important achievement.
1: Thank you very much, Eric. Okay, a question uh, we've had from Andre Kusweg, uh, former uh, regional managing director for the EBRD, uh, now head of the Nordic Investment Bank. Uh, What would the EBRD be in 30 years from now in 2051? What should it be perhaps? Uh, That's an interesting question. Uh, Sergei, why don't I turn to you? What do you think the EBRD will be like in 30 years?
5: Well, uh, I think I really like the founding principles of EBRD, and I think EBRD should stick to those principles. We've seen a lot of change in how EBRD applies those principles, and we've seen a regional change as well. Uh, and uh, in that sense, in that sense, I think EBRD will continue to evolve, uh, to evolve and probably will graduate some countries, complete its business in some countries, and move to new regions that need it. A lot of people would say, what is so common among uh, new countries of operations and post communist countries? What is uh, uh, similar and different in Turkey and Southern Eastern Mediterranean and Central and Eastern Europe? And the answer is there are many common things. Beata mentioned privatizations. A lot of countries around the world, unfortunately today without communist past still have a great reliance on the state sector, which fails to create good jobs which fails to create uh, uh, economic dynamism. And the BRD has a lot of work to do around the world, how to build new competitive uh, private sector jobs that are actually compatible with uh, sustainable development with ESG. And I think this this is going to be the future still. And unfortunately not everywhere by 2050 will have net zeros. And uh, the work of um, sustainable development, unfortunately in 30 years will not be finished. But the business model of Iberdi, I think really suggests a lot of lessons. And I think it will be an important um, uh, guiding institution in the universe of multilateral development banks and its business model will be emulated by many. One of the things we mentioned today, and I, I really like that feature of EBRD, is presence on the ground. EBRD is a regional bank that takes the regional thing seriously. EBRD's staff is on the ground. EBRD's bankers in London and economists based in London know the region very well. And that, that human capital, those skills are one of the most important advantages of uh, strengths of BRD And I hope EBRD will remain focused on its countries of operations, will not be spread too thinly. And uh, this is exactly what makes banker, banks and bankers stronger. They know their clients and they care about their clients. And I think this is the feature of BRD that I would like to see preserved, not to become too global, not to become too too thinly spread, and I think this is, this is how we overcome development challenges. Uh, as uh, Leo Tolstoy said in Anna Karenina, all unhappy countries are unhappy in their own, uh, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own ways, and I think this is true about development as well. All developing countries differ in their challenges, and so you need to know your clients in order to help them to develop in a sustainable way. And I think this is the strength of EBRD which I would like to see preserved. It's good to bring some high quality uh,
1: literature to this debate. Thank you very much indeed, Sergei. Uh, Nick, hopefully you and I are young enough to be around in 2051, but uh, what does the EBRD look like then? Well, I'm hoping the present value of my
3: pension will have turned out to be spectacularly large if I live to uh, 2050, but I'm planning on it. The, um, I think some things that should be the same are the principles that Sergei and others have emphasized. Article 1, Article 2, sound banking, additionality, transition impact, they really help shape how you uh, confront a changing world. And one thing that we know is that we'll be confronting, or confronting maybe the wrong word, is living in and trying to shape a changing uh, world. So those I think shouldn't change, but they will give us the ability to change ourselves if applied uh, well. Um, Secondly, the application of those principles, exactly as I've been saying, in terms of managing rapid change, it would be great if the EBRD uh, was the bank which could really manage change to take advantage of change, uh, build opportunities into change, and that it's done it in the transition process itself from the old um, century planned communist systems, but doing it now in uh, the transition to net zero. And one thing we know is that rapid change will stay with us. Probably the digital story is only just beginning and that's going to change fundamentally so much of uh, what we do. So stay with the principles, but be the the bank that uh, is at the forefront of rapid change And lastly, broaden the notion of capital. It's mostly been a physical capital bank and understandably uh, so, of course, investing in physical capital with a purpose of changing the system and how firms and markets uh, work. But I think we have to think now that if we worry about sustainability, we're talking about the future generations having opportunities at least as good as ourselves. That will be shaped by the assets that they have and the assets that uh, they have will be physical, natural, human, and social. So I think the uh, EBRD, in the face of the rapid change, in the face of the imperative of sustainability, will widen its notion of investment to include physical, natural, human, and social capital. To be fair, I think that's already happening. But I think that's a process which will be uh, deepened and
1: broadened. Thank you very much, Eric. Twenty fifty one.
4: Mm-hmm. No, I, I think we are already seeing uh, some of, of the changes that are will be with us because the COVID kind of speeded up some aspects. I think when it comes to remote working and so on. For example, you know, we we have discovered that when it comes to um, monitoring infrastructure projects, we can, for you know, a few hundred dollars, uh, achieve. Better results than sending um, consultants out to monitor uh, uh, what's happening in, in just using uh, drones and, and and satellite imagery and so on. So I, I think we are these institutions are going to look very different. And and uh, as uh, Nick was saying, the digital story has just begun, and I think it's going to be you know uh, very exciting to see how how these institutions bring that on board and, and we are very much working on that in the institution where i'm at the moment because if we have an advanced; we don't have a very much a legacy so we can build these systems from from scratch and it, it really uh, is, is a, some very exciting ideas are coming up in that process but what i'm very worried that uh, and that we, we have to make sure that we don't lose is what sergey was saying uh, you know the this understanding of of the particular lack of development or the particular institutional weaknesses of individual countries, we must not lose that. And we must not lose this very strong uh, understanding that Sergei uh, emphasized and to me was the, probably the single most important thing that I took away from my time at EBRD was, you know, how how important it is to have people who have worked on the ground, you know, who, who understands you know, what works and what doesn't work and what has worked in the past and and, and, and are in constant contact with, uh, with people uh, on the ground, you know, whether it's in, in government or in, in the private sector, it's absolutely essential. And I think it is particularly for the development model that in my view, um, EBRD represents, you know, where you try to work, you're trying to develop the, the private sector in, in a broad sense uh, by working on both, as I said before, on the, with the private sector, but also working with the state to create space for the private sector and to help the private sector contribute to infrastructure, for example, without necessarily taking over everything. We don't have to do PPPs uh, out of everything, but it's about letting the private sector, the energy, the skills, come into uh, infrastructure investment, but not losing, uh, of course, the the, the the very important dimension that these have to be inclusive, these have to address uh, the, the, the lives of, of people, so we must not lose that in, in which would I expect to be very fundamental changes to how, how these institutions operate.
1: Okay, thank you. Beata, uh, 2051, what will you be saying to your successor Chief Economist?
2: In addition to what has been said, I will be encouraging my successor um, to keep EBRD as an independent source of credible information, right? We have the power of the pulpit. When we speak, people listen. And I think we should be bold and we should not be afraid to speak inconvenient truth, whether it's talking about climate change in countries where politicians are not discussing it, whether it's talking about misuse of state banks for political gain, whether it's about women being asked to provide more collateral than men when applying for loans. We have a role to play. And in this world of post-truth, truth, it is more important than ever before.
1: So thank you very much indeed. Now we're going to have one final question. It's going to be very very quick answers for you from all of you in about thirty seconds. It is from Ron Freeman, who uh, was the first uh, first vice president of the bank uh, when it first started. Uh, and he asks, you know, what did you take from the EBRD with you into your professional lives when you when you left the EBRD? Uh, Nick, was there one thing in thirty seconds that you took from the EBRD that helped you through the rest of your professional life?
3: I learned about banking and entrepreneurship from great teachers, you know, like Ron and and Noreen, David Hexter. That was something which, as an academic from the LSE, I hadn't had before. And understanding entrepreneurship, private sector banking, was absolutely deepened by the experience. And that has uh, stayed with me.
5: Sergey? Well, As, a, as an economist, I now understand better how economics works in practice. And what I've learned is economics works. And uh, if you ask me to talk to my successor, chief economist, beyond this room, I will always advise them to be intellectually honest and believe in, in uh, basic economics because it does improve lives and it does help to do good sustainable banking.
1: Thank you. Eric, you talked about one thing being people on the ground, but is there one other thing that you took with you?
4: No, well, I, what I, as I said, what I really took away was the, the respect for all the skills that are needed to make products work, and and uh, that uh, you know it's easy when you come from as I did and as we all did, I guess in one way or another from the academic world, and we we thought we had all the answers, and and uh, I, I so what I really learned was you know the the importance of of, of you know not only. Uh, Understanding what's happening on the ground, but also technical skills of, of structuring projects, very complex projects, uh, whether it's infrastructure or financial um, sector uh, these or, or private uh, companies uh, in manufacturing. So all those skills um, we sort of we assume them in, in our models. Uh, but uh, when you live with them on a daily basis and our sitting through those uh, Friday mornings in, 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 uh, in Opscom, uh, it, it is, uh, It's both humbling and, and, and uh, at the same time reassuring.
1: Thank you very much Eric. And Beate, well you haven't left, you're still at the bank, but is there one thing Biata, that you've learned so far in your time in the bank that really sticks with you, think is going to be useful one day, many years hence in the future?
2: I think it's about the interaction between economics and politics. And it's about how democracy and free markets reinforce each other, right? Free uh, democracy is a force that is taming free markets. Why free markets serve as a check on politicians and constrain them in what they do. And I think the lesson for me is that you cannot think about economic reforms without thinking about politics
1: of them. All right, Beata and Nick and Eric and Sergei, very good to see you all on here. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts once more with us. Thank you to Odile, of course, who joined us earlier. And it was great, by the way, to see so many names uh, from the banks past uh, joining us as well. You know, I really uh, recognize all those names and and the contribution they've made to the bank. It is really good to see you all and taking part in the debate. We're going to be posting a podcast of today's session a little later on. You can download it on iTunes and, of course, reviewing and rating it helps others to find us. We always like that. Uh, I'm Jonathan Charles. Until next time, stay safe. Goodbye. See you soon.
0: You are listening to a special edition of Econ Talks, dedicated to the 30th anniversary of the EBRD.